Hey there, everybody. I'm David Bruner, Director of Discipleship at Paley Presbyterian Church. Hey there, friends. Dr. David Bruner here from Paley Presbyterian Church. So glad that you're joining us for this episode of Until the End of the World, Episode 5. Just a heads up that in this episode, I make use of a couple charts to help summarize where we've been and where we're going. Uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, sorry about that. You obviously won't be able to see them. You can, however, check them out on our website, paleyprez.org adults, along with all the other recommended readings for this class. And feel free to drop me a line if you've got any questions or you just want to talk about the themes of this class. david.bruner at paleyprez.org. Thanks and blessings. Welcome, everybody. I'm David Bruner. Welcome to this, the fifth session of our class, Until the End of the World, Heaven, Hell, and the Hope of Universal Salvation. I'm so glad you're all with us today. We're talking today about the fourth of four points of view on heaven, hell, and salvation. So as you know, if you've been following along, we're looking at um, four different points of view that are identified with at least four different thinkers. Um, so the first week we looked at the traditional view associated with Augustine of Hippo. Um, that's, we called that the eternal conscious torment view or the traditional view. The second week was universalism, which we um, learned about by talking about a guy named Origin of Alexandria. Last week, we looked at sort of modifications of the traditional view, um, the free will defense of hell from C.S. Lewis, as well as the idea of annihilationism from John Stott. This week, um, we're looking at a point of view that I'm calling agnosticism or reverent agnosticism which is associated with a, a Christian thinker named Karl Barth. Um, so agnosticism usually means people who don't really know whether there's a God or not. You'll say, are you, an, are you an atheist? And they'll say, no, I'm an agnostic. I don't really know and I don't care. That's not what we're talking about today. So the, the use of the word agnostic is a little bit different than what you may be used to. Um, as you'll see, it refers to someone who believes it may be possible in the end that everyone will be saved, um, but isn't sure and doesn't want to uh, definitely conclude that that's, that, that that's the case. So we'll be spending um, uh, the bulk of our time today talking about uh, that point of view as it's put out there by Karl Barth. Um, but first we're gonna look at some scripture. So um, I don't know if any of you had a chance to look at Romans nine through 11, but um, that's um, we're gonna look at part of that today. I, Romans 9 through 11 is way too long for us to look at even in an hour and a half. So I was gonna narrow it down and just show us Romans 11. So what I'm gonna do now is um, I'll put it up on the screen and I'll, we'll read Romans 11 together. Um, so if you have it in your Bible, feel free to um, follow along. Paul's, Paul is talking about in this passage, he's talking about the fate of his beloved fellow Jews. Um, many of whom had not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And in chapter nine, especially, Paul talks about how painful this is. And uh, he, as a Jew, was deeply invested in the idea that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, that he was the expression of the God of Israel's faithfulness to his covenant promises. 
So in chapter 11, we're sort of picking this up in midstream as Paul reflects on why on earth the Jews haven't believed the gospel message. And he starts by saying, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God turned away from Israel? By no means, he says. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left. and They are seeking my life. But what is the divine reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a sluggish spirit, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and keep their backs forever bent. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their stumbling means riches for the world, and if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not vaunt yourselves over the branches. If you do vaunt yourselves, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, 
if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they, may, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. And here's the end. Oh, the depths of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay. Congratulations, everybody. You just made it through all of Romans 11. That's a big um, T-bone steak of a Bible passage. There's a lot to digest there. It's okay to not get it all. It's okay to feel overwhelmed, even a little bit. Um, take a moment. If you've got a Bible in front of you, go ahead and, and look back over it. Um, what jumps out at you? What strikes you? What questions do you have? What didn't you get? What does this passage have to say to um, the themes of heaven, hell, and salvation that we're looking at in this class? As I see it, David, um, there's hope for the Jewish people mm -hmm. who have not followed. I mean, great love, Paul describes here, that they can graft them in to the olive tree again. Absolutely. So part of what, um, so what, you know, what's the chapter about? So the chapter is about, on one hand, the fate of the Jewish people in God's plan of salvation. And um, people are saying, okay, well, the Jews aren't accepting Jesus. Does that mean God has turned away from them? And Paul says again and again here, no, no, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. Um, God's faithful to those covenant promises that he made. On the other hand, um, he, he's also saying, hey, you know, they may yet come in. 
there may, may yet be a response to the gospel. So yeah, there, there is a, a very profound hope for the Jewish people here. That's great. Um, what else do you see here or what other questions do you have? It seems to emphasize the sovereignty of God, that God has the power to save in spite of people's separation from him. Yep. So, yeah, that's a really important point. So one way of thinking about it is who's in charge in this passage? God. Yeah, right? That um, when, when Paul reflects on the disbelief of God's covenant people in the gospel, it's really interesting. He doesn't say, okay, they're rejecting the gospel because of X, Y, Z reasons, right? Well, you know, Peter went over there and preached the gospel to them, and we all know he really stinks at, at sermons, and so that's why they didn't accept it. He looks at it from a theological point of view and says, what is God doing? Um, and so he does assume a strong account of God's sovereignty, that, that God is at work even in this disbelief of his people and yet the, the disbelief of the jewish people is not final it's not the last word it's working towards something good so if you look at um verses 30 through 32 here i think you see sort of a summary of what he's getting at right so <laughs> he essentially says god's allowing the gospel of Jesus to flourish among the Gentiles, even though it's not being accepted among the Jews. And the goal is to kind of make God's people jealous <laughs> so that they will then turn around and say, wait a second, we want a piece of this action. Give us some of this, right? And then there's that beautiful quotation in verse 32 you see on your screen, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to so Paul is saying in some way, the rejection of the gospel by many Jewish people, not all, plays a role in his God's larger plan of mercy. And that's, that's very significant. So Dave, from that, we can update it to uh, humanity in today, uh, today's humanity. So it, not only he's speaking specifically of the Jews, but today we can include all humanity into this. Hmm. That, that's interesting, yeah. I mean, because um, it says God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Right. So this is, I'm glad you pointed that out, Lou. This is one of those all passages that you find in, in the New Testament. So we talked about this in week three when we looked at universalism and origin, right? The, the idea that um, part of the, the biblical force of universalism is trying to make sense of passages like verse 32 that, that emphasize all, right? So the Greek word for all is panton, mm -hmm. and the, the Greek name for universalism is apokatastasis panton right? Restoration of all. 
Mm-hmm. And so someone like Origen will, might look at this and just say, yes, absolutely. You know, God's ultimate goal is to be merciful to absolutely everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I think what you see here, right? Mm-hmm. So um, on a, you know, Romans 11 is, is on, to a certain extent, it's, it's about specifically the Jewish people. And I think that's important to hold on to. But on the other hand, yeah, right. That like, I think part of what this says is that like, as long as, as the world is still turning and Jesus hasn't come back yet, (laughs) part, part of the church's job is to keep spreading this message of God's mercy and to not lose heart when people don't believe in it or don't accept it because, you know, God is, there's a line I've heard somewhere and I forget who said it. The, the cunning of providence, the cunning of providence that, that God, God is not only um, at work through belief, through people who respond to the gospel, but God, God can even use the disbelief of certain people to advance his purposes. Can those branches, meaning like the Jewish, not the remnant part of the Israelites, mm-hmm. but the that part of the Israelites who were the branches that were cut off. Yeah. Will they ever be shown mercy since they were already mm-hmm. cut off? Yeah. yeah. So, I, so, and you can see that right here in verse 23 on your screen, right? So even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief will be grafted in. <laughs> so, and then he said, you know, he's, there's this really extended analogy about, the olive tree with the wild branches, the natural branches, and then the, the branches that have been grafted on. Mm-hmm. And if I were Paul's freshman English instructor, I would say, okay, Paul, this analogy is starting to get away from you a little bit. Why don't you rein it in and, and tell us a little bit more about what exactly you mean, right? Um, but <clears throat> essentially he's making that very point, Tony, right? That like God yeah. has pruned some of these wild branches, some of these natural branches, right? They're on the ground. But if they do not persist in unbelief, they could be grafted right back onto the tree. And Paul about is, the, oh, excuse me. How about the ones from century, many centuries ago? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And so that's what I was referring to. <laughs> Paul. So Paul doesn't. So Paul's. I don't know if he's thinking here about people who have already lived and died. I would say certainly, so the, the, the strict literal answer is that that's not in view in this passage. Yeah, so it's kind you of like, that, to God, like a holy silence type thing. Exactly. So I think that it's more, you find it more in like 2 Peter 3, where he talks about preaching to the spirits in prison. Mm. You know, there, there is more of a discussion of those who have gone before, who have died, who, who do not know the gospel, mm-hmm. um, or maybe don't accept it may have Christ preached to them um, in their state. There's, mm-hmm. there's some, there is some biblical warrant for that idea of a post-mortem encounter with Jesus, but um, it's not here. If you, you know, if you read this passage along with that one, you know, I, we certainly can't rule it out, would be what I would say. Thank you for the answer. Yeah. David, does disobedience in verse 32, <clears throat> only mean <clears throat> accepting the Jews who accepted the 
um, Christ is the Messiah or not, um, it doesn't mean sin. For God has imprisoned all in sin so that he may be merciful to all. Yeah. It has a more, does it have a more specific meaning? That's a really good, that's a really good question. So I think up until, I think he's got a, in verse 32, I think he's got a pretty wide scope for that. Because if you look at verse 30 and 31, you know, he's saying, just as you Gentiles were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, that the disobedience of the Jews. Mm. So I, I think, um, I think he thinks the Jews are supposed to receive Jesus as the Messiah because Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. But the, the pagans, the Gentiles <laughs> are just sort of don't know anything about the God of Israel anyway. They're just kind of clueless muckety bucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they're being disobedient in their own way, right? By, um, worshiping false gods, by idolatry, by fornication, by greed, by all other kinds of stuff. So I think in verse 32, when he says God has imprisoned all in disobedience, I think we have to read that. We have to read that in light of, you know, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay. Does that help? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Dave. Is anybody else struck by the fact that in these passages, Paul seems to be describing a lot of manipulation? Mm. Um, I I feel like, you know, he's playing, I don't know whether God is doing this or Paul is (laughs) giving it as an example. He's playing one set of people against another making the Jews jealous so that they will come to know. I mean, as a parent, I have engaged in my own amount of manipulation to get my (laughs) children to do what I think is right. So part of me understands that, but I guess I never thought of God as manipulative, but it keeps jumping out at me at this, Um, or whether it's just Paul's description of it, I'm, I'm in, I'm one of those vortexes again, where I'm going down a rabbit hole and I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it's just like, as God has imprisoned us all in disobedience, so he can be merciful to us. That sounds to me like, that's the one thing that has always bothered me about the book of Job. I feel like God was playing with people. And so I kind of ignore the book of Job Um, and, and I'm finding this to be and it's sort of the same vein anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I appreciate your honesty, Nancy. And I, I think it is certainly if we, um, if we did feel like God was being manipulative, <laughs> that would be an unpalatable character trait to find in your God, right? Um, I think one way to think of it is what Paul is de- what Paul is trying to do is actually the, the very opposite of saying that God is sort of manipulative or, or capricious. What he's trying to do is defend the covenant faithfulness of God to Israel. Um, and this is perhaps clearer if you read at length chapters nine and 10, which of course I've left out today. So I don't, I don't blame you if that's not at the top of your mind, 
Um, right. So he's part of what he's wrestling with is I believe in Jesus and I believe Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. And yet, you know, I, my friends, my fellow Jews don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Just like I myself didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus not too long ago. And how is it that, you know, why, why do I get it, but they don't get it? And um, part of what this, so I think part of what he's doing is working through a position that allows him to acknowledge the empirical reality right in front of him, while also holding true to his belief that Jesus is the Messiah and that God's going to be faithful to Israel. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a first stab at it. I don't know if that speaks to where you're at at all. We can talk more about it. I just took out the message, and I think it's a little clearer if you read it in the message. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I actually really wanted to look at Peterson's translation of this. So, you know, it, it, my experience of Peterson is that two thirds of the time he's absolutely brilliant and one third of the time he, he just whiffs. Um, and I'd be really interested to see what he does here. Um, for, the, for the sake of everyone's time, I don't know if we'll, I won't read it all in his translation, but yeah, if you're curious about this passage and wanting to come to a greater understanding of it, consulting him is certainly a, a good idea. So keep in mind, something I want you to keep in mind as we look at this passage. So this passage is very frank in its depiction of the sovereignty of God. So by sovereignty, you know, we mean what? God is king. God is ruler. God is in charge. God God is capable of disposing over the world in, as he sees fit, much in the manner that a king or queen might dispose over their, their kingdom. And what you see here is Paul's, Paul affirming, sort of as a matter of course, the idea of divine sovereignty. So if, if the Jews aren't believing the gospel message, in some way, God is doing something in that. And that's kind of a, a mind-blowing thought right there. The thing I want you to see is that for Paul, even the disbelief of particular people plays a role in God's plan of salvation. So what he does not say is, boy, it's a real bummer that the majority of Jews haven't accepted Jesus nothing we can do about that, <laughs> right? I guess I'll just go on and keep preaching to the Gentiles. Instead, he wants to, he, he articulates this very creative vision of how Gentiles will motivate Jews to believe and in the end, in the end, it actually serves to magnify and spread even further the mercy of God. So this, I love this passage because um, it reminds me of Karl Barth. Part of what we're gonna see in the latter half of our class today is the way Barth um, articulates a strong understanding of God's sovereignty, of God's 
um, presence and influence and authority in and over every event, but does not arrive at the sort of challenging understanding of heaven and hell that someone like Augustine does. So keep this passage in the back of your mind. You can write it down. You can return to it as we continue to think about this. Um, I just, uh, I have to apologize. I have to go. It's not for lack of interest. I just have a conflict. So be well and thank you. Not at all, Tom. Thank you. Um, okay. So, all right. Here's something fun that you'll appreciate next. So um, I wanted to um, offer some visual aids to help you understand a little bit more about where we are, because we've we've covered a lot of ground, right? Um, and I assume that many of you have felt um, flashes of confusion um, every now and again following along. Um, so some uh, visual aids might be good. So I made a chart. And if you're wondering, how do you make a chart in PowerPoint? That's a great question. And the answer is, I don't know. So what I did is I got out my pencil and I sketched two charts on pieces of paper. And then I scanned them at church and I inserted them into this PowerPoint document, which is why it looks like a fourth grader drew it, because that's approximately my level of freehand sketching ability. Um, so this first chart, it, of course, is a Venn diagram. This is something that I talked about last week, but it's helpful to actually have it in front of you. So you can see, right, a Venn diagram is two circles and then they overlap. So um, it's helpful to think about, you know, what's this class about? This class is about heaven, hell, and the possibility of universal salvation. So that's the circle on the right there of your screen. That's the theological issues related to heaven, hell, and salvation. And then you've got the theological issues related to grace and free will on the other side. So everything I just said about divine sovereignty in the book of Romans relates to those issues about grace and free will. And what you see here is that the, the issues of heaven, hell, and salvation and grace and free will, they overlap to a certain extent. They're not identical. They're not the same. Um, there are parts of them that have nothing to do with one another, but they do overlap in this certain way. So I wanted to just spell that out for you. Um, you've probably had that sense as you've read some of these figures. So in a sense, where you come down on the issue of heaven, hell, and salvation has a lot to do with what your sense of grace and free will is. So this was the case in Augustine, it was the case in Origen, it was very much the case in Lewis, and as we'll see, it's very much the case in Bart as well. So that's my first chart. Here's the second one. What you'll see is, um, so there's an x-axis going horizontally and there's a y-axis going vert vertically, right? I'll put both of these charts up on paleoprez slash adults. Um, and you can download it and take a, a look at yourself at your leisure. So you don't have to hustle to write it all down now unless you want to. But that, so the X axis, it says on the left, it says universalist. And on the right, it says infernalist. So universalist and infernalist. Those are my two names for, you know, so universalist is someone who thinks everybody's going to heaven. 
And infernalist is someone who thinks almost nobody's going to heaven. So that's the x-axis, that's the horizontal line. The y-axis, the line that goes up and down, it's a, up top, it says bound will. And down at the bottom, it says free will. So bound will, as the name suggests, are people who think um, it's all grace. The human will is entirely responsive to divine grace. Before the Holy Spirit gets involved, there's no free choice to be made. So you can see that both Bart and Augustine are on the side of the chart that's closer to the bound will. So there are two strongest advocates for a bound will position. So John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards aren't in on this chart. If they were, they'd be over on the bound will side of things. Down at the bottom in the free will side of things, there's Lewis. So you remember last week, if you look at what Lewis has to say about hell, he essentially says, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell, but human beings send themselves to hell through the misuse of their free will. And he essentially says, God doesn't like it, but God has to put up with it because that's a condition of creating free human beings. Down in the corner, a line with universalism and free will is origin, right? He, he tends to be more optimistic about free will, especially in the long run. He thinks eventually, um, God has the power to make plain the error of people's sinful ways such that they will now or in eternity repent and embrace God. Um, so I wanted to do this because it helps visualize, it helps you see where um, our four thinkers fall on, on these particular issues. Um, are there questions about these, about these charts. Um, hopefully this made it clearer rather than more confusing. <laughs> um, I suppose if you can't actually see it, that probably hasn't helped, but um, is there anything I can clarify for you about this? Okay. So I'm gonna keep going. So- Dave, yeah. Dave. I was thinking that Lewis was more of a universalist. Yes. Um, so he's a little bit, um, he's a little bit waffly. So maybe on this diagram, it's a mistake to put him that far toward the infernalist corner. Um, okay. he, he, maybe he should be a little bit closer toward the universalist side or maybe right in the middle. So if you look at, so if, for instance, if you look at his fiction, the, the famous book, The Great Divorce, um, you know, there, there are definitely some people in that book that start out in hell, but make it to heaven. Right. Um, if you look at um, his prose, the, the problem of pain and the chapter on hell that we looked at last week, He's, he says he's more skeptical. 
Um, and he just says, uh, you know, some people will be, he, he essentially says, I, I think the people that are in hell won't want to leave ever. And perhaps this is a benevolent confusion on his part that he's leaving a door open that he otherwise might seem to have shut. Um, certainly, yes, in his, um, in his fiction, he's very, um, he cl clearly portrays it, a couple people making it out of hell and up into the light of heaven. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about Karl Barth. Okay. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about Karl Barth. Karl Barth is pretty much by universal agreement, the most important reformed thinker of the modern period. Maybe Jonathan Edwards um, in the 1700s comes close, but um, Karl Barth is, is a big deal. Um, I went to Princeton Seminary. He's the patron saint of Princeton Seminary. So I'm required by law to think that he's a big deal, but I certainly have a lot of respect and admiration for him. Um, so there he is. He lived from 1886 to 1968. He was born in Switzerland um, and he taught theology at the University of Basel in Switzerland for most of his career. Um, he was a parish pastor at the beginning of his career, he actually never earned a doctorate in theology. He's one of the um, one of the last really great theologians who managed to do that. Um, today would be almost unheard of for that to happen. Um, but he went straight from uh, the parish to a position teaching theology, largely as the result of his book that came out in 1919 called The Epistle to the Romans. It's his commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, some of which we just read. Uh, in the famous saying of one of his contemporaries, this book fell like a bomb on the playground of the theologians. Um, it was a very, there was a certain way that theology was done in 1919 and Karl Barth, you know, came along and tipped over a lot of furniture and, and basically said, this is all wrong. We can't do it this way. And he really initiated a revolution in how theology was done. Um, his magnum opus is a multi-volume work of systematic theology called the Church Dogmatics. Um, dogmatics there doesn't mean dogmatic in a negative sense. It means uh, church reflection, church thinking, church theology. Um, he worked on it for more than 30 years, but he never finished it. It was left incomplete when he died. Um, like Augustine, he was an engaged uh, leader and a very fierce controversialist. So one thing that's really interesting to me is that if you look at the history of the church, sometimes the greatest church leaders are the ones that lived during the most conflictual times. So part of what made Augustine so great was that he was at the center of a million different theological controversies that were really important. And I think uh, to a, perhaps to a lesser extent, the same was true of Karl Barth. So Karl Barth wrote the Barman Confession, which came out in 1934, which was a theological document resisting and denouncing Nazi distortions of Christian life. 
this confession became the primary rallying point of the so-called confessing church. So the Protestant church within Germany that most clearly resisted the Nazi regime. So at, at this point in his career, Bart was teaching in Germany. He hadn't made the move to Switzerland yet. Um, and it, it, it's a be very beautiful statement of the Christian faith. It's actually in the PCUSA's book of confessions. So the, the Presbyterian church that we're part of has adopted the Barman confession as one of the statements of its own reformed faith. I encourage you to check it out. Um, for his pains, Bart was summarily fired from his teaching post at the University of Bonn and expelled from Germany. They pretty much marched him to the border and put him on a train back to Switzerland and said, please don't ever come back. Um, and before he left, one of the last things he said to his students was, he, he said, let me say this to you, exegesis, exegesis, and yet more exegesis. Exegesis means the art of studying scripture and listening to its message. So his, his final words to his students were, hey, keep studying the Bible, um, which I think is a lovely anecdote about his life. How do we engage with Karl Barth um, and his teaching about heaven, hell, and salvation? So following Hunsinger's article, we've spent the last three weeks evaluating thinkers through the lens of these seven points. If you've um, been following along, these will probably fa be fairly familiar to you. Augustine affirms all seven points. So we start out and he's positive on all seven of them and the other thinkers we've looked at diverge in various ways. Uh, so for Augustine, hell is actual, it's severe, it's just, it's eternal, it's penal, it's ordained by God, and it is inscrutable. For, in Hunsinger's article, very interestingly, by the time you get to Karl Barth's position, the, the sort of reverent agnostic position that Hunsinger describes, he does not lay out Barth's position by looking at these seven points. Uh, nor will I. I think for, the, for reasons that will shortly become clear, it would be unhelpful to try and um, understand Barth's account through the lens of those seven points. So we're gonna approach it through a different lens. So um, I'm gonna lay out some points and you feel free to follow along. And if you have a question, by all means, feel free to just jump in and interrupt me as we go. Okay. One easy way, the easiest way to understand what Bart is doing is um, to go all the way back to week two when we talked about Augustine. Um, some of you may remember, we talked about the Augustinian puzzle, the Augustinian puzzle. Um, and you can see it's got, you know, it's just these three points, right? So on one hand, scripture tells us that God desires all to be saved. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. So God desires all to be saved. And yet, when we look around, we see very clearly that not everyone has faith in Jesus. Many reject him explicitly and say, I'm nuts to Jesus. I want nothing to do with this guy. And other people simply don't care or don't even have any idea about who Jesus is or what it's all about. Evidently, God's desire that all are saved is, does not come to fruition in many people's lived experience. How then do we harmonize these seemingly contradictory ideas? That's the puzzle that 
Augustine is, is trying to answer. And as you will recall, his con controversial but influential solution has two parts. So one, he's committed to a bound will theology that emphasizes grace and divine transcendence over human free will and choice. The best way to put it, I think, is um, in that third bullet point where it says divine grace creates human freedom rather than being constrained by human freedom. So divine grace isn't the sort of thing that competes with or um, is circumscribed by the free will of a human being. Divine grace is the thing that creates a truly free human will in the first place. That's what Augustine would say. Of course, he, he would probably cite many passages in Paul to this effect, for instance, 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. As we've discussed, this point of view becomes standard for much of the subsequent Christian tradition, including our own Presbyterian and Reformed one. So by the time you get to John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, people like that, they're, they're all committed to something like this point of view. The second part of the puzzle is not just a commitment to a bound will theology, but a commitment to an infernalist theology <laughs> um, that sees hell as the place where sin is punished and divine justice is fulfilled. So Augustine really thinks that every human being merits damnation by virtue of being a sinner. And that's, I have an, a little exclamation point there, right? So that's, in some ways, that's the most challenging part of his point of view. But what that means for him is that God doesn't owe anyone salvation. God can freely decide to save some, a few, by his grace, and is also within his rights to allow others to eternally perish and go to hell. So, Augustine's solution to this puzzle preserves grace and preserves divine sovereignty, but requires him to gloss or reinterpret scriptural passages that emphasize the universal divine desire for salvation. So, um, if you go back and look at the assigned reading from Augustine, you'll see he wrestles with, um, with 1 Timothy 2.4. It's precisely that passage that, where he, says, he winds up saying, well, uh, it's not exactly that God desires everyone to be saved, but that anyone God really desires to be saved is in fact saved. So he, he puts a gentle gloss, a reinterpretation on that passage. Now, in addition to emphasizing grace and divine transcendence, Augustine's account has the advantage of being admirably clear and logical, if you can in fact stomach it, right? So um, in the academy, we sometimes talk about a particular person or a particular article as being a bullet biting um, position. So what that means is when you don't 
waffle about the unpalatable entailments of your point of view, but forthrightly embrace them. So for instance, right, you know, I'm a Christian, I believe God wants me to love everybody. And someone might say, well, Dave, sure, loving everybody sounds good in principle, but what about, you know, if someone um, killed your whole family, heaven forbid, right? Would you still be required to love that person even then, right? There's two ways of responding to that person. You can say, well, um, gee, I don't know, that's really hard. You can waffle and go back and forth. Or you can bite the bullet and say, you know what? You're exactly right. I am required to love even that person that I am not ordinarily required to love. Part of what I'm trying to say is that Augustine's account as extremely um, unattractive as it can be in many ways has endured because it provides clear answers to questions that people really want to know the answers to. In that respect, it is a bullet biting account, right? It owns up to the answers it has, even though people might not like them and says, here it is. I think this is what's true. Take it or leave it. You know, there it is. Okay. The point of reviewing all this stuff that Augustine says is to set up Karl Barth, okay? I'm gonna keep going. So now we'll turn to Barth. So Barth has the same puzzle, but a different resolution. And it's helpful to think of Barth as offering a series of variations on the Augustinian theme. So Barth too is committed to a bound will theology. So he, he also affirms that human beings um, absent divine grace, prior to divine grace, are captive to sin and unable to save themselves by their own effort. There's a bound will, theological perspective. God's grace for Bart creates true human freedom and rather than being constrained by human freedom. Um, so in this, he's, he's really very close to Augustine's own point of view. By the way, this, um, this is a view, it's certainly a more pessimistic or limited evaluation of the human capacity <laughs> to, to choose God or embrace God absent divine aid. Um, Karl Barth came of age right around World War I he was actively involved in the resistance to the Nazi party in World War II, and he was a leading theologian during the Cold War. So part of what we need to remember, right, is that <laughs> Bart's European context is really collapsing and falling apart around him in many ways as he's doing his own theological work. And I think he has ample <laughs> empirical justification for his low evaluation of humans um, in that way. Here's the difference. Bart rejects Augustine's infernalist theology. 
he is much closer to the universalist end of our chart than the infernalist end. Why? It's really interesting. It's not on account of human freedom, right? We already know that he's got a bound will theological outlook. He doesn't say or believe the kinds of things that Lewis says or believes. It's not because he thinks Augustine is too cynical about human goodness, nor is it because he thinks Augustine is too callous in consigning vast numbers of human persons to damnation. Um, for Bart, Augustine's account is insufficiently attentive to what God has actually done and shown us in Jesus Christ. So in theology, we talk about Christology. That Christology is the discipline of theology that explicates who Jesus was and what he did. So when Karl Barth advances objections to Augustine's infernalism, his objections are all Christological. That is, they all stem from his understanding of the nature of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Barth's theology can be very, very roughly summarized by saying, God is really like Jesus. God is really like Jesus. What is uh, one, one way in to Bart's theology is to say, okay, what is the character of the God revealed in the scriptural story about Jesus? What's that God like? We see again and again the description of God as gracious and merciful, beginning in the book of Exodus and running all the way through the New Testament. We see the wonderful parables in the Gospel of Luke and elsewhere about a God who um, does not only forgive, but actively seeks out and rescues those who are lost in sin. The well-known parable of the prodigal son, but also the parable of the woman with the lost coin or the shepherd and the lost sheep, right? Who, those people actually go out and look for the lost one. Um, what you see in, in the four canonical gospels is of course a God who takes the penalty for sin on himself. Um, this was, I literally just picked this ver verse from Mark 10, 45, almost at random, because it was the one that was in the top of my mind. There are numerous other passages we could cite to similar effect. Um, Paul talks this way as well in 2 Corinthians 5, when he, sa when he says, God made Jesus the one who didn't know sin at all. God made Jesus to be sin so that in Jesus Christ, we, we sinners might become the righteousness of God. There's this holy exchange that's going on between Christ and ourselves, where Christ gets the punishment we deserve and we get the riches of Christ's grace and mercy. So Augustine reads his Bible as well, He's actually a very, very um, uh, learned student of scripture. Augustine feels, he wants to affirm these passages. He feels compelled to limit their scope in some way or form. 
and it has to do with the, the sort of consistency and the conclusions he wants to draw. To this, Bart just says no. One of the bedrock commitments of his theology is that there is no other God except the one revealed in Jesus. God has no other heart than the heart revealed in Jesus Christ. That's who God is. So when Paul tells us um, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, um, Bart wants to take that with the utmost seriousness and make that sort of passage the foundation for interpreting the other ones about hell and damnation and, and those sorts of things. All right, this is a lot of content. I'm just gonna stop and give you an opportunity to jump in and ask a question if you want to now. All right, give me a thumbs up if you're with me so far. Okay, seeing some thumbs. Okay, this makes me happy, good. Okay. Some of the consequences of this. So Bart is building his whole theology around Christology, around the God we see revealed in Jesus. And in particular, around the character of the God we see revealed in Jesus. What are the consequences of doing this? So we talked about how for Augustine, there are fundamentally two groups of human beings. There are people who go to heaven and people who go to hell. There are the saved and the damned. For Bart, there are not two groups of people. There's just one group of people. There's just humanity. And all humanity is the recipient of Jesus' work on the cross, through which sin is punished and given its just deserts, and through which mercy is extended to sinners. So Bart rejects this idea that... Um, on the basis of what we see about Jesus in scripture, we can conclude that there are two groups of people with differing eternal destinies. Second, for Bart, mercy and justice are not divergent options pertaining to two groups of people, the saved and the damned. They're both vindicated on the cross. So, Recall again for Augustine that Augustine would say, you know, God extends mercy to a few, the rest he allows to go to hell to receive the just punishment for their wrongs. They're, they're two different fates. They're two different aspects of God's um, working. They're both totally fine. Bart wants to say, no, the cross is both mercy and justice at the same time. Um, so once again, you see him tweaking or modifying the Augustinian position, which is what people have been doing all along in this class. Third, scripture does not tell us a story about the ultimate fates of two separate groups of people. Rather, it tells us about God's ongoing work to create a community called the church that is a witness to his loving and redemptive 
purposes. And there's that, I say, God's providence is subtle and wily, right? Go back to the idea of the cunning of providence. The church, because of the cunning of providence, because of the unexpected ways that God works in history, we must resist drawing definite conclusions about the final destiny of those who do not accept Jesus as Lord. Um, and so this is where this brings us back to where we started with Romans 11, right? So in Romans 11, you see God intentionally um, hardens a part of Israel. That's what Paul thinks is happening, right? God withholds belief in the gospel from them, not so that God can damn them and send them to hell, but so that other people will be saved. And then the same group of Jews will in fact come in at the end. And Paul winds up by saying, all Israel will be saved. So Bart wants to emphasize, we are in the middle of this story. The story's not over yet. And to come to a, pre, a conclusion about, okay, X group of people is definitely going to hell would be entirely premature. Among other things, this is very interesting. Among other things, this means that for, for Bart, Christian preaching should never attempt to scare people into faith by preaching about the terrors of hell. Preaching should always be an exercise in proclaiming the free grace of God meant even for sinners. So if this sounds commonsensical to you, so first of all, I know from the first week of this class that many of you have had the experience of hearing sermons that did attempt to scare you, you know, scare the hell out of you, literally speaking, right? Scare you into heaven. That is somewhat unusual in our own day and age, depending on which corner of the church you hang out in. But it is certainly um, quite normal in the history of the Christian church. Um, Right. So the most famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, one many of you may have heard of, is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, and it's it's essentially a long disquisition on the idea that the only thing stopping you from going to hell right at this moment is the mercy of God. And, you know, if you if you'd better be sure that you're right with God to um, be snatched out of hell. Of course, Billy Graham, a, a figure I really admire in a lot of ways, um, famously, be, famously made it a theme of his preaching, saying, if you died tonight, are you sure that you would go to heaven? Um, so I think, you know, certainly there's not a lot of hellfire at brimstone preaching at our own Paley Presbyterian Church. But I think Bart has, Bart provides a theological rationale for um why the kind of hellfire preaching that we're all acquainted with might not work or shouldn't be done. Maybe we can talk about that in a minute. All right, we got a few more slides and then we'll stop and have some discussion. So Bart's interpretation of scripture puts him in, in close proximity to universalism. And he pointedly does not rule out universalism. He does not rule out the idea that all will be saved in the end. 
Um, and so this is a, this long quote by the bullet point is a quotation from Hunsinger and the, um, the elements in quotation marks are Bart himself. So Hunsinger says, when the reality of Jesus Christ is taken properly into account, does it not point plainly in the direction of the work of a truly eternal divine patience and deliverance and therefore of an apocatastasis or universal reconciliation. This work would be supremely the work of God to which we as sinners have simply no claim. But although we cannot claim it as a right or a necessity, surely we are commanded to hope and pray for it here and now. We hope and pray cautiously and yet distinctly that God's compassion should not fail and that he will not cast us off forever. Note, however, the, the caution with which Bart frames this universalistic hope. He says we should cautiously hope and pray. What we absolutely may not do, Bart says, is what Origen and other universalists do, proclaim a final salvation of all with definite certainty. He thinks we cannot do that. That all may be saved has nothing at all to do with the intrinsic goodness of humanity, <laughs> with a glib optimism about divine goodness. Bart says, God does not owe eternal patience or salvation to human beings. If universal salvation should actually occur, this is Bart again, it can only be a matter of the unexpected work of grace. Even though theological consistency might seem to lead our thoughts and utterances most clearly in this direction, we must not arrogate to ourselves that which can be given and received only as a free gift. So I think this is my final slide. Note how in that last quotation, Bart demurs from a certain theological consistency. So he says, even though theological consistency might seem to lead us in this direction, we cannot take that final step of saying, yes, universalism. Yes, it's definitely going to happen. Yes, 100%. He declines to bite the bullet. Um, so Hunsinger puts it this way. Hunsinger says, if you asked Bart to choose between the statement, all will be saved, and the statement, not all will be saved, <laughs> he would refuse to answer the question. <laughs> His answer would be none of the above. He, right? So he leaves the door open that all might be saved, but refuses to answer it. There is a studied vagueness or ambiguity. Um, Confusion might be a less charitable word, right? In his answer, and, but it is intentional um, because he thinks it's both alternatives are dangerous. He doesn't want to close the door that all might be saved, but he doesn't want to definitely make it a possibility that all will be saved. So he lacks the satisfying consistency of both the universalist and the infernalist points of view. Depending on your own attitude, this might be a good thing or a bad thing. I know Augustinians who think 
who essentially think Bart um, wimps out at the last minute by leaving the door open for universalism. I know committed universalists who think that Bart wimps out by refusing to make universalism a definite conclusion. <laughs> I like being in the middle, but um, it's important to notice the trade-offs that have to be made. My guess is that most of us will like Bart's point of view a lot more than someone like Augustine's. But if we embrace it, we have to be willing to live with a lot more mystery. Um, okay, so that's an awful lot. What, what can I make clearer to you? What questions do you have? Um, and what do you make of this um, perspective that we've been talking about? Well, it kind of makes sense to me because how dare we put bounds on God? Mm -hmm. How can we definitely say, I know God, I know exactly what he's going to do. So Barth is good in that we can hope and have hope. Yeah. But we're not God. <laughs> we're only human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I like that. You're yeah. unmuted. Yes. And I lean in that direction. I would lean in that direction. Sure. I like the part right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You finished. Mm -hmm. I like the part like in 427. It says to respect above all the sovereign freedom of divine grace. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then that part, and then another part of 429, it says it is, it, which is what Lou, what you said, mm -hmm. it is not like for humanity, for example, it's not for us to deduce what God must do. And I can live with that. I, I respect that. It's like, who am I that I think I, I know, as it says mm. in part, as, as Job said, or as, as we read tonight in Romans 9, that I should know God's mind, you know, what he's going to do right. ultimately. There's that part of trust there. And I can live with just trusting without knowing exactly what God is going to do, because mm. I, I'll trust that. Yeah. I, I trust his mercy. I trust his grace, equal justice, you know, what Jesus was done on the cross. Yeah. Or, or a combination of, you know, grace and justice combined. Yeah. So I think one of the things, so one, I, I appreciate a lot of what you've just said, right? And I think that attitude of, I don't know exactly what will happen in the end, but I trust God is a very, is, is one that, that Bart is very sympathetic toward. And mm -hmm. Part of, part of what you can say on Bardian terms is, I don't know what's going to happen in the end. I, I am not God. I don't have a clear picture of what the ultimate destiny of everyone will be, but I trust that God is like Jesus mm -hmm. and that God's mercy and God's justice will both be fulfilled um, in the manner we see on the cross of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful place to be. Is this ambiguity that um, Bart leaves us in, is that agnosticism or is agnosticism something different? No, that's, that's agnosticism. Okay. Yeah. So he, he doesn't know whether all will be saved or not, but he hopes that they will be. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do we deal, how does one deal with the argument first, Bart says, Christ is the real revelation of God. Yeah. 
but how do we deal with what that means uh, and with people who say, well, but that doesn't imply divinity, doesn't imply anything special about Jesus, just that Jesus was a good man. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, so um, Bardis, Bart is certainly thoroughly committed to the idea that Jesus was more than just a good man, more than a moral teacher. Um, and that's part of his, um, very much part of his reassertion, part of it, part like in the, the epistle to the Romans, the book he wrote, right? There's a lot of reasserting that Jesus is really God and not just a human moral teacher. Um, so, Are you, are you asking what becomes of people like that in Karl Barth's scheme of salvation? Or what would he say to people like that? What would you say to people? <laughs> um, I, I think he would preach to them, right? And he would say, um, if you believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher, good for you. You know, let's look at where his good moral teaching got him. <laughs> it got mm -hmm. him nailed to a cross. And then three days later, something completely unexpected happened. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, is, is that, um, can you really have the, the truly beautiful and countercultural moral teaching of Jesus without a willingness to see it all the way through to the, the cross and the empty tomb? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Well, may I ask one follow-up? Uh, not so much a follow-up, but one more question. Somewhere along the line, I've come across a phrase that I would think was something like prevenient grace. Yes, prevenient grace. Does that ring a bell with you? Yeah. Uh, what is that idea and where does that fit in these various uh, approaches to heaven and hell? Yeah, I mean, so prevenient grace, it, it basically means, you know, prior grace or grace okay. prior Primarily Catholic. Um, it may play a role in Catholic theology. I know it primarily as a description of God's grace um, working in our lives before we're aware of it, and or can ask God to be at work. Mm -hmm. So you know when Paul is on the road to Damascus, right, and God arranges it so that he's there, and then smacks him and knocks him off his horse that's God's prevenient grace that, you know, God is at work in Paul's life without Paul asking it. <laughs> it's just there. Yeah. yeah. That's, I think that's what prevenient grace is. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Okay. So, um, um, Bob and Debbie, I'm so glad that you guys are back. I want to, I don't want to, you don't have to say anything, but you've been very quiet and you've been listening very attentively. I just want to invite you to share if there's anything on your mind. It's been interesting. Sorry that we missed a couple lessons. <laughs> there's a lot to think about. And it's, it's, you know, it's definitely not straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the important stuff never is. Yeah. No, no. But trying to understand the viewpoints and trying to make, you know, Trying to decide what we really believe is kind of tough. It, it really yeah. is. Yeah, it it is. There's there's a lot there. Um, you know, uh, the good news is we get a whole we get another week next week to try and put the pieces together a little bit more. So 
um, if you're still working on all this or trying to catch up with where we're at, hopefully you've got, you've got a little bit more time to do some more processing. So um, thank you for your honesty, Bob. I appreciate that. Um, so do you find this understanding of heaven and hell persuasive? I, I do. Yeah. This one, I, when I just keep, like you said, with Barth, if you just think about Jesus and how kind and loving and how, how could he just disband all of humanity? Mm. And I think Barth kind of talks about that. Mm. If yeah. he's a true loving God, would he let people just go totally go? Sure. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things, so living in the 21st century, we find, um, Bart is a lot closer to, I think, the intuitions that many of us bring with us to the biblical text. So, you know, Bart is more willing to sacrifice consistency and clarity and live with mystery while, while holding on to the, the central commitments to the character of God. Whereas Augustine, you know, 1500 years ago and change um, is is more committed to, um, you know, he would see Bart as losing his nerve to a certain extent, right? And and failing to follow through on the, the full witness of scripture in all of its particulars. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm with, uh, unsurprisingly, I'm with Lou, right? I, I think it's, it, as I've said before, when you're reading the Bible or when you're doing Christian theology, you always have to play the mystery card at some point. So there's going to be some point in the process where you have to put down the card that says, I, this is a mystery. God is God and I am a human being. I don't understand it, but I believe it. Right. The key question is, when do you do that? And, um, Augustine and Bart just play that card at very different points. Dave, um, I have been uh, reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Oh, wonderful. It is full of humorous looks yes. at ourselves and our frailties and selfishness and pride. It's hilarious, among other things. It is, and also quite frightening that we yeah. so often make our own choices. So this study you're enlightening me as well as all of us in ways that i'm grateful for thank you i'm very glad wendy thank you um yeah i encourage all of you if you want to if if you want um to go further with c.s lewis the great divorce is, is a wonderful book um and worth studying so let me tell you a story um one of Karl Barth's um, most famous students was a British man named T.F. Torrance. And T.F. Torrance was uh, served in the British army during World War II as a chaplain. And he was in, I believe it was North Africa. And he was called in after a battle to minister to a soldier who had been very severely wounded and was about to die. And the soldier said again and again and again, chaplain, is God really like Jesus? Is God really like Jesus? If God is really like Jesus, I'll be okay. Is God really like Jesus? 
And, and uh, T.F. Torrance assured him more than once, yes, God is really like Jesus. Yes, God is really like Jesus. And then the man said, okay. And then he passed away. And I, I think one of the, every, every single one of the theologians we've looked at would want to affirm that statement, would want to say, yes, of course, God is really like Jesus. Um, I think one of the reasons I appreciate Bart's theology is that I think he goes further than other figures in the tradition in allowing us to say that without reservation and without hemming and hawing. Um, yeah, that's, that's the, one of the things I appreciate most about his point of view. Um, final thoughts, questions, or comments? Well, one comment I would make, Barth still talks about the wrath of God. Very much so, yeah. What we all, that we all go through judgment, but, but, the, but God burns away whatever is keeping us away from God. Yeah. Through and and that way we gain salvation. So it isn't that Barth is so. Oh, everything's hunky dory. Everything's fine. You know, we still have to go through. God still judges us. We go through, according to Barth, at the last judgment. We still go through judgment. Yeah. God is kind and gracious to allow us to get rid of the things that hold us from being totally like Jesus. So uh, thank you, Lou. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things, one of the things I appreciate about Bart is that he, he holds on to the theme of divine judgment. So often in the church, especially in 21st century America, it's easy to, you know, preach a version of the good news that essentially leaves out that says it's okay God loves you. Your sin is not really all that bad. You are a good person trying your best. Go along to get along. It's nice to be nice. You know, what a wonderful world we're living in. <laughs> and I know it's a temptation for me to preach that way from time to time. But what we see in the world is, is of course, a great deal of uglier than that. What we see in the Bible is a strong and dramatic judgment of human sin, right? That sin is something that God says no to. Um, and sin is something that, you know, put Jesus on the cross. And what I love about Bart is that he's able to, I think, do justice to that biblical theme without allowing it to turn into the kind of infernalist theology we see in Augustine. So I, th I think that's a, that's a very valuable point, right? And Hunsinger is really good on this. So if you want to learn more about Bart's point of view, you can go back and read or reread the section in Hunsinger. Um, yeah, he's, he's very, very good at summarizing his point of view. Okay. Um, thank you all so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back next week when we're going to have um, a final week of discussion to, to help with your processing, put all these pieces back together. Um, God bless you and I'll see you next week.